assign myself. <laughs> I was hoping I would give it to someone else, but the Lord decided, nope, it's going to be you. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and it's not that I don't. I mean, I do have a passion for marriages, and you will find out why in a little bit. But over the years, I've learned so much that how do you squeeze into 45 minutes, and it won't be, it'll be longer than that. <laughs> All that you've learned in 50 years. It's, it's just so hard. And so, you know, I, had, I, I did. I knelt before my God and looked into his word. And where do you want me to start, Lord? Where? There's so much. And so I'm hoping and praying that as, um, well, actually the title, the Lord gave me the title a while back, but it was supposed to be for somebody else. <laughs> and I was hoping they'd figure it out. <laughs> But I had to. And so the Holy Spirit is faithful, and I hope and pray that tonight with what I share with you that you will, you will see just how valuable um, marriage is. So the title for our study tonight is The Vows, which means promises, and Virtues, which means principles for holy matrimony. And that word matrimony, in case some of you younger girls don't know what that is, it really means marriage. Uh, Way back in the old days, on your wedding invitations, you would be welcome to the holy matrimony of so-and-so. But later in life, they changed that, made it a little more simpler. And in fact, today, you can really create your own invitations, save a whole lot of money, because those invitations back in the day were super expensive. And so I am honored to be able to speak to you tonight on marriage, um, and I pray that uh, you will just open your hearts to receive what the Spirit has to say. So let's pray and, and go before him. Father, we bow before you, my God, in Jesus' name. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that right now you would just um, empty me and fill me with your presence And that everything I say, Lord God, in the timely manner it needs to be said, Lord, that you would um, take what these words are, Lord, to the hearts and minds of my sisters, Lord, and to all who will hear. And like one of my sisters prayed earlier, if it not today, tomorrow, or 10, 20 years from now, your word is timeless because your principles are forever. Your word is eternal. And so I pray, Father God, though I am a weak vessel trying to pour out such glory, I pray that um, you would take it and just make sense of it to all my sisters, Lord, and to all that are here. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight I'm going to be teaching on what I'm calling the four stages of marriage. The first stage is our premarital relationships. Our second stage is our newly married relationships. Third stage is our mid-marital relationships. And then finally, the golden years of our marriage relationships. But before I teach on these stages, um, it's, it's important that we first go to find out why marriage is considered holy. So we need to go into the very first book where marriage began, which is in the book of Genesis. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, I really want you to understand why marriage, as in the title, is holy matrimony. 
Now, unfortunately, I mean, I love teaching from Genesis 1, 2, 3. The whole book of Genesis is incredible. But all I can do tonight is just highlight those verses that will speak to these four stages that I mentioned. So please listen closely, because if I leave something out, um, then I want the Holy Spirit to just, with words that I say, he'll complete those words in your heart, because you know the word. So it says in the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that point on, we have this amazing planet and the solar system, everything. And I would love to speak on all that, but now we go down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So he uses the the plural form there, us and our In the original Hebrew, it's really three. It's not two, it's not four, it's three. So this speaks of the triune God, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the Godhead agreed that they would make man in his image. Verse 27. And God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him male and female, he created them. Now, that word image means visual, a visual representation. Now, we know that God the Father himself can never be seen. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.16, it says, He lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him, no human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. So when God created man in his image, he created the purest vessel that could ever hold the divine nature of God himself in bodily form. Then the word likeness has to do with intellectual and spiritual similarities. So Adam and Eve were created equally. First and foremost, having the spirit of God's holiness. Remember, they were sinless in the garden. So they were created with complete holiness. They were created purer than any human could have ever been created, except for Jesus. When Jesus, who is God the Son, put on the flesh of a man and came down to earth to dwell upon the earth with us. So Adam and Eve were also created with God's intelligence. They were created with his wisdom, having the ability to think and to reason, his strength, his capacity to wholeheartedly love, and to even choose. Do you realize that God can choose? He can choose. And it's throughout the scriptures you'll find passages and scriptures where he chooses. <clears throat> but God's choices will always be holy because he is holy. And he can't be anything but holy. Then in verse 28, Then God blessed them the man and the woman, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So God said, it was a command, it wasn't a suggestion. Subdue means to have control. So they were together to have control over every living thing that was on the earth, including themselves. They had the power of control in their lives. He said, so it was a command, once again, be fruitful and multiply. 
So God created within a man and a woman the ability to procreate. To procreate. God created humans, and humans were given the privilege and the honor to create more humans, man and woman. Verse 31. Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Then we go down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Now Moses is going to give us a more detailed account of man's creation. He gave us a little summary. Now he's going to give us some details. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And for me, whenever I read that, I think of the eternal breath of God breathed into Adam. And when you think about life and a baby in the mother's womb, God created that child, as as they're going to be able to bear children, to have a breath inside the womb. It's just hard to understand, right, how God could give a child in the womb the ability to breathe in all those fluids, but he did. And then if that child has a chance to be born and come out, he takes that breath. And that's when you know, he's okay, she's okay. And then that child grows on in the next generation, the next generation of the eternal breath of God until the last day when we take our last breath. Um, Can you imagine all the generations that we will never know because many children are, are taken before they have a chance to breathe. But until God gives us all our last breath, he's going to still give us the ability to have children. Um, let's see, where are we? Verse 20, I'm sorry. So we're, now we're in uh, 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend Eden, to tend and keep it. So man was created to work. He wasn't created to just kick back and have everybody hand everything to him. Work was a good thing. And he was created in a perfect world to even there work. Proverbs 31, which we're going to be studying more about the Proverbs 31 woman and all the work that she does. She loves the work she does. She's a very active and creative woman to work not only within her home, but within her, within her community, uh, within many lives, as we're going to learn. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in this perfect world, God gave them one command with a serious warning, and that warning was you will die. So the age-old question is why would God create this perfect world and in the middle of this beautiful garden put a tree that has this incredible, beautiful-looking fruit that they were not supposed to eat. They were commanded, don't eat of it. Well, this tree stood as an object of the freedom of choice. Just as God has the free freedom to choose, he gave man the freedom to choose as well. God has always wanted us to have that free will to choose. He did not create slaves. He did not create robots. He did not, and he does not, and he will not ever force us 
to love him and obey him. It's a free choice. And because um, his will is divine for us, he always would want us to choose him. Even, as I said, until we take our last breath. So, I have to say this. When people are out in the streets screaming that Christians, and they are screaming this, want to take away people's right to choose, it's a lie. Because our God, who we are one with, we are one with him, and we know that he's the giver and taker of life. And so we treasure life, all life, and so does he. But he still gives people the right to choose, so do we. Now, if we're going to vote for something, you better believe we're going to vote for life. We have the freedom to do that in this country, and so do other countries. And I will always choose life. That's just the way it is, because that's what my God chooses, life. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So when you think about the intelligence in Adam, this intelligence that God gave him, he had the ability to look at all that God created, all the animal life, maybe even the plant life, and give names to everything. And as he was giving names, he was just seeing the beauty of everything. But for him, there was nothing comparable to him. I mean, I don't look like the monkeys. I don't look like the giraffes. I don't look like the lions and the tigers and bears. But it, it didn't phase him, really. It says that after God created everything, he considered it very good. But in God's infinite love and goodness, he acknowledged that there was one thing not good. And it wasn't that Adam complained or that he acknowledged that he was alone. It was because God noticed it. Now, most men today would probably love it if they were in a quiet place without a woman always <laughs> nagging them. <laughs> well, honey, what about this? Are you going to tell me about that? You know, But no, he, he wasn't in that place. He had no clue that he was separate or he was alone. But God did. And so we need to always remember that in God's omniscience, he knows all things, and there's nothing that ever escapes his heart or his eye when it comes to us. If we have a need, he knows it. And if he decides to give it to you, it's because it's for your good and for his glory. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place, then the rib which the Lord God had taken for man, he buried it in the dirt and waited a billion years for it to evolve into a woman. <laughs> Aha, you're awake. <laughs> no. An evolutionist would tell you that, that it took billions of years for all of us to be here and all of our different species and personalities and everything. No. God took the rib and he made a woman and he brought her to the man. So here it is, the very first wedding performed for mankind, when the father brings his daughter, the bride, to her groom, her husband. This is the fundamental definition for the term holy matrimony. Holy because our holy God saw the need for man's completeness, and he filled that need with a woman, a bride. He instituted marriage. It was his idea, not ours. 
Then verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam is now pronouncing his marriage to Eve. Joining, that's what marriage means, bringing something together. His oneness with her and their oneness with their creator, their holy creator. Then Moses, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, continued writing, and he said in verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now, this, with this picture of a holy wedding as our background and our holy God, we're going to go now into our first stage, our premarital relationships. Now, I'm going to spend more time here. Um, because that's what the Spirit kept showing me. I was trying to shorten it, but there's so much. And I believe that we're in this generation that the young women and single women need to know these things. So this, in this stage, it's for all young women and mature women who have their hearts set on marrying one day. And like one of our sisters prayed, don't a lot of girls start planning their wedding when they're very young? I know my daughters, when they were young, they even had names for their children. (laughs) And they were like, I don't know, 10 or 11. I go, write it down. You may want to use that someday. You may really want that name. Um, According to the WHO, World Health Organization, um, adolescence is the ages between 10 and 18. And that is when most young people, guys and girls, start having an attraction for the opposite sex. Now, to me, between 10 and 18, it seems like a huge gap, right? (laughs) I mean, like, I can't imagine a 10-year-old already having attractions, but they do. I remember my first crush. I was in kindergarten. I was five. (laughs) I remember his name, Alfonso Amaya. Dark hair, big brown eyes. Alfonso Amaya, if you're out there. (laughs) But I mean... It's just inborn in us to have this attraction, right? Do you remember your first crush? Right? I don't know what age you were, but I was five. (laughs) But in today's culture, just like I was five, I won't tell you how old I am. I'm in my 60s. (laughs) But in today's culture, 10-year-olds are very um, doing adult things with their bodies, They're making adult decisions over their bodies. And so it's important that the very young even learn these things. So, well, according to G-O-D, God Almighty, he has given parents the right to decide when your children are emotionally and spiritually mature enough to venture into the relationship with the opposite sex. Now, it isn't a farce, as I said, to believe that we can't be attracted at an early age. And so it's really up to parents to pay close attention to their daughters and their sons when they start showing those changes. They start being attracted. But what about when you are at that age, when you can now make decisions? You can now. Maybe your parents are allowing you to talk to a guy. Isn't that what we call it today? The young people call it, I'm talking to this guy now. And, um, and so it's important that you know 
these things that I'm going to share. So you're no longer just looking at a guy from a distance and like, wow, he's so cute. You're talking to someone. You may be dressing for him now, paying more attention to your makeup and your hair, the way you walk, the way you talk. Have you ever noticed that young girls, they, their, their whole voice changes? We start talking different, hey. You know? <laughs> oh, I'm sure I did it, but I've seen it with my girls. We do change. And it's up to parents, as I said, to pay attention to these things. But you might be in the wooing stage. And he might be in the wooing stage. You might be willing to start calling him boyfriend or hoping one day he will be your fiancé. And so that's where we are now. Now, it's normal that when we have this attraction, that we see someone and we, like Adam said, whoa, man, you know, like, wow, man, check him out. We inherited those feelings from Adam and Eve, our garden parents. It's human to get butterflies in your stomach when you see him or when you see his name maybe light up on your phone. Oh, he's calling me. You get all, there he is. It's what you do with these feelings that is crucial to your future and especially to your walk with Jesus. This is where everything can go right or everything can go wrong. Because all of your choices that you make at this first stage in your life could go on with you the rest of your life, whether it's good or bad. Now, in the Garden of Eden, where everything was perfect and there was sinless perfection, when Adam woke up from his surgery, he had surgery that God performed, he woke up to the perfect woman standing right in front of him. Adam knew instantly that she was a perfect match for him because he knew his perfect creator wouldn't give him anything less than perfection. As a believer in God's omniscience, his infinite wisdom, and his all-knowing insight, we may wonder, does God have someone out there for me? Or do we, as the saying goes, have to kiss a lot of frogs to find our prince? The answer is no. God's daughters do not belong in the swamps where frogs live. The same God who brought Eve to Adam is the same God who could bring the right mate to every man and woman, but to those who trust and wait on him. One of my favorite scriptures is Psalms 27, 13 through 14. Now, I go to this scripture all the days that I have to wait for something. I'm always waiting for something, a result an attitude, whatever. We're always waiting for something. But I want to use this one for the girls that are waiting for God's perfect match. David said, I would have lost heart. In other words, I would have just died unless I had believed that I was would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It wasn't that he thought, like, I'm just going to die and never see this happen, whatever it is that you're waiting for. He said, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Waiting is where faith can develop by leaps and bounds. Because as you're waiting on the Lord and you're pursuing the Lord, not thoughts and all these other things, the Lord de- excuse me, develops your heart with him and your relationship with him. That word, um, I'm sorry, where is it? Courage also means valor. 
In the original Hebrews for the 31, Proverbs 31 woman is also a mighty woman of valor. She has strength and power to say no and walk away. Now, for a moment, I need to take you back into the garden so that we can see what happened when Eve encountered the father of all swamp creatures. The serpent, the devil, the one who encourages unholy relationships. Now, some of you may, um, oh, some of what I'm going to share is going to be intense from this point on. But we are living in intense times, right, with all that's going on with our young people and all of us for that matter. Warren Wearsby said, truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. I would be brutal in my love for you if I didn't tell you the truth, if I didn't make you aware of the things I'm going to make you aware of. And I am maybe not the best of teachers, but I believe I am a truth teller. And that's what I'm here to do today is tell you the truth. In Genesis 3, 1 through 6, in the New Living Translation, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. So first of all, we have to see that God made him. Do you know that Satan, the devil, was at one point an archangel in heaven? God gave him freedom and power, and he decided one day he was going to be bigger than God, and so God kicked him down to earth. Ephesians 6 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness. Satan does not have a body, just like God doesn't. He's like a spirit, and so he inhabits bodies. He possesses people. And so it's believed that in this serpent, he saw Eve there in the garden, and he went into this serpent and became... She wasn't afraid. It doesn't say she was afraid and ran the other way. She started talking with him. And so one day he asked her, the serpent, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? So he's already distorting the truth. The devil is the liar, the father of lies. He said, you can't have any fruit. Of course we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it or you will die. Now, it's interesting that she added that. Remember, we read it earlier. Adam didn't say, don't even, I mean, Adam did, God didn't tell Adam, don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it or you will die. So I believe that when, because we don't know the timeline here really, but when Eve was created and now they're walking in the garden, he's showing her around, showing her all the beauty of the garden, and then they, you could eat of all these trees, but that one right there, Eve, don't eat it. Don't even touch it. <laughs> but where is she? She's right there by the tree, looking at the tree, and the devil sees that she's lingering in a place she shouldn't be. At this point, she really was behaving like a single woman. She was married. She was joined with her husband, but she was making a single woman's decision. And then the serpent said, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So you would be like God. Verse 6, the woman was convinced And she saw that the tree was beautiful 
and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. I want to know what it's like to have a beautiful boyfriend. I want to know what it's like to be kissed by a boy. I want to know because, I mean, all I have is grandmas and moms and dads kissing me, but I want to know what it's like to have a boy kiss me. I want to know what it's like to be taken out to dinner alone with a boy in his car. So she took some of the fruit, the lie, and she ate it. What's so incredible to me is that she was already created, as I said earlier, with wisdom. God didn't hold back anything. doesn't say he gave them all of these things, but not wisdom. He gave her that wisdom, but she was deceived into thinking that what he gave her just wasn't enough. And in the world that she was living in, like the world we are living in, we need more. The world is getting more. Why shouldn't we get more? So the devil enticed her to step across the line of no return. Eve did try to wave her red flags, but to no success. Now, many years ago, she was arguing with him about what she shouldn't do. Many years ago, I had a young woman say to me, I wish someone would have told me how difficult it would be to be a single mother. This was a young Christian woman who was raised by Christian parents who stepped across the line of intimacy into fornication. And that's an ugly word that a lot of people don't like to hear these days, but fornication is having sexual relationships outside of marriage. And she had this relationship with a non-believer. It wasn't just her financial struggle that had her, you know, upset about her life because she had to work hard to provide for her child. Or that her child was a burden to her because she loves her child deeply. It went deeper into her spiritual soul, as it does all women who step across the line of immorality, no matter what that immorality is. Her words pierced my heart that day and my soul. One of the theme passages for our series is from Proverbs 24, 3-4. In the New Living Translation, it says, A house is built by wisdom and becomes strong through good sense. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with all sorts of precious riches and valuables. Listen to verse 5 and 6. The wise are mightier than the strong, and those with knowledge grow stronger and stronger. So don't go to war without wise guidance. Victory depends on having many advisors. So ladies, do you realize that we are all in a battle for our hearts, our minds, and our souls? The enemy is after us in one way or another. But especially, I want to speak to young women today. Well, in this house, in my soul, the most valuable thing that I could give to you tonight or offer you is the wisdom that I have gained through the years. And most of it, unfortunately, by experience. And the precious word from God that he has implanted in my heart. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it teaches us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Now, in preparing for this message tonight, of course, I I went all the way back to when I first got married, and I went back even further. So the things I'm going to share to you, um, I want you to know that it is um, how I learned the meaning of red flags. I didn't even hear that term back in those days. 
but I learned those what it means to have red flags in your life. And I want you to remember what I'm going to share right now is my BC years and my husband's BC years before Christ, not before COVID. <laughs> these, day, <laughs> these days, everybody's measuring time by COVID, but I'm going to take you back in time. Now, I was not raised by Christian in a Christian home, but I was raised with old school Catholic principles and the fear of God. And I say old school because the Catholic church today is not the same church it was generations back. They have opened up their hearts and our minds, I should say, to things that are ungodly. I call a lot of these um, preachers of the Catholic Church, basically, or their priests, false prophets, because they are speaking lies. Well, I had just turned 17 years young. I was still in high school. I was a junior in high school. And I was hanging out with this guy named Joe Salias. He was 23 years old. He was handsome. All the girls liked him, but he chose me. He singled me out. He had a car and money to buy me an In-N-Out burger. <laughs> First In-N-Out burger in, in Baldwin Park. Well, I was impressed that he had a car and can take me to the drive through to get an In-N-Out that cost maybe a dollar and 25 cents at the time. He was six years older, so he seemed very mature. He just got out of the military, went to Vietnam, came back. So he was built. He had muscles. Not like the scrawny, pimple-faced guys that were my age in high school. He was popular among his peers. So I became popular with them, too, because I was Joe's girl. But almost from the very beginning, we had a very volatile relationship. He was jealous. <laughs> Girls, red flag. He was controlling. He was very belittling. When I was 17 and he was 26, he knew more. I was very naive, naive about a lot of things. He would say words and phrases that I never heard before. And he, you know, he'd look at me like, you're so dumb. He was very belittling to me. There's that guy that makes you feel small. He was a drinker. He was a drugger. Under the influence, he would abandon me at parties, leave me there. He would be violent and sexually aggressive when he was under the influence and he was a cheater. I can speak of these things not because of book knowledge, though by now in all my years I have book knowledge, but I could speak to you of these things from street knowledge because I lived it. Then, one day when I was like, done, I'm done, I am no longer doing any of this, um, he came, I said, we're done, I broke up threw my engagement ring at him for the 20 millionth time. <laughs> and um, then he came to my door one day in March of 1973 and said he accepted Jesus. I accepted Jesus in April of 1973, and we eloped to get married in June of the same year. We knew nothing about what a good marriage looked like since both of us came from broken marriage homes. We pretty much, all of our um, 
examples for marriage in Christians, they had flawed marriages. So we weren't getting good examples there. We knew nothing about waiting on God to see spiritual growth or spiritual fruit in a new believer or a professing believer. You know, if you start dating somebody that's raised in a Christian home, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I was raised in a Christian home. We didn't know anything about looking for fruit in their life. You know what fruit is, spiritual fruit, you know, that you're seeing godliness in them. Before we even celebrated one year of marriage, the old man showed up again. You know what the old man is? That's that old nature. When Jesus has been trying to do a work in your new nature, because you're new in Christ, when you stop walking close to the Lord, the old man starts showing up again. And he starts showing up again in my husband. By now we're married. And uh, he wasn't drinking and doing drugs, but it was the attitude. It was that character that was always still in there. And before you know it, the old woman showed up, me. And I had cheating on my heart. (laughs) Don't they make songs like that? I had cheating on my heart. Well, it took six more years of living our younger, stupider days all over again. Only this time we were married and we were backslidden Christians. Till we finally, one day after torturing one another waved the white flag. And we surrendered each one of us, our lives, to the Lord. And I shared a little bit last time. But we surrendered to the Lord, knowing that he's the only one that could come in a marriage and fix it. You know, like our house out there, it's, it's you know, pretty much not ready. It needs work. It's, it's, it's been gutted. We needed to be cleaned out. God needed to clean us out of our old nature. And now let's start this born-again process all over again. That's what happens to new believers, backsliders. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4, 7 and 8, in the New Living Translation, this is for you young girls. God's will is for you to be holy, to stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body. Remember that control Adam and Eve had? You can have it too, and live in holiness and honor. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying humans or what I'm teaching you tonight, but is rejecting God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are the temple for the living God. He is living in you. 2 Timothy 2.22 New Living Translation, it says, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. And I love, sorry, my throat's a little dry. I love that. Run. Don't wait to see where it's going to go. If you see it's not going good, you see all those red flags, run. Compromising, putting yourself in compromising positions is dangerous, especially if you get along with the guy that, you're seeing these red flags. You need to guard yourself. You need to walk holy in the Lord. Instead, it says, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. That's who you should be hanging around with, like-minded believers, Christians, who are also walking in the fear of the Lord. 
Now, before I leave stage one, and I'm still in stage one, I want to leave you with some hope and some homework. And moms, you need to do help your daughters with this homework. Psalms 144.12, King David's prayer over his kingdom and over the youth of his kingdom, he said, he's praying to God, may our sons flourish in their youth like well-nurtured plants. Now, anyone that works in the yard knows you can't just dig a hole and throw a plant in it. You have to nurture it. You have to go in there and get that ground prepared. You need to water it. You need to fertilize it. Well, this speaks of the word of God. You need, Moms, you need to be pouring the word of God into your daughters and your sons. That our daughters may be graceful pillars, be like graceful pillars carved to beautify a palace. I love this whole, these two verses here because I love looking at palaces. And when you look at um, a carved pillar in a palace, they're not just sticks of wood. They, time went into them, time to carve out the beautiful posts that would hold up a ceiling. And that's what we are to do, carve into our beautiful young daughters and sons even this beauty that, that God desires in all of us. Psalm 127.3, it says, Children are a gift from the Lord and a reward from him. They are a reward from him. So we are to um, embrace our reward and we are to involve ourselves in the holy development of our, of our children. Next month, Thelma will be teaching more. I had so much I wanted to share, but I know she will cover it beautifully. Now, one of our foundational passages for our studies is Proverbs 31.10. Who can find a virtuous wife for her worth is far above rubies? First and foremost, we need to reiterate to our children that their worth has nothing to do with their works. I said that last month. But, it has, but their works are a manifestation of their faith, of their worth. And so a lot of, I've met many women over the years that feel worthless because of the worthless choices they made. But our worth comes from Jesus and not from doing all these works that we're going to study in the future, though they are vital to our, to our being. In, um, in the original Hebrews, Proverbs 31 says, who can find a virtuous woman? It actually doesn't say wife. In the Amplified Version, it says, a capable, intelligent, and virtuous woman, a woman with principles, who is he who can find her? She is far more precious than jewels, and her value is far above rubies and pearls. And I love that it, it says in that version, pearls, because pearls are my favorite gem. A, a pearl takes time to develop. It takes time to develop. It doesn't just appear in a clam. It it's rubbed and rubbed and rubbed until it. I'm sorry. Until it becomes this beautiful pearl, just like all of us, it takes time. Excuse me. Normally, I'm not dry like this, but tonight I am. I'm scared. <laughs> so, who is he that can find her? So often when we teach on the Proverbs 31 woman, we always focus on the woman that the guy should be looking for, right? All of these virtues, are, and which is a good thing. We need to teach our guys to look for this godly woman. However, a woman of God should also be looking for a man or a young man with these same godly virtues as well. If you have your eyes set 
and your heart's set on marrying one day, you need to be watching out for this character. So turn with me in your Bibles now to Titus chapter 2. This is another one of our foundational scriptures. Now, last month I taught on what the older women are to teach the younger woman. Well, here um, Paul is exhorting Timothy what he should teach to the men. And this is the kind of man you should have your eyes set for. But as for you, Timothy, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine of sound principles, sound godly principles. That the older men, this is for you older or um, mature, single women, you are to look for that older man who is sober. So he's not a drinker. He's not a drugger. He's sober-minded. He's reverent. He's temperate. In other words, he can control himself. Sound in faith, in love, in patience. Verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Again, thinking straight, not given to crazy thinking. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern for good works. So there has to be a pattern there. You have to see it. It's not a one-time shot. Oh, he's, you know, yeah, look at he prayed today. That's good enough for me. No, you have to see a pattern in his life that he is a man seeking God. In doctrine, so he lives by the word. Showing integrity, he lives by the word. Reverence, he's respectful of you and God and everyone that is in his life. Incorruptibility, that means purity. He needs to have a pure, it would be awesome if he has a pure body as well. Sound in speech that cannot be condemned. So he's not cussing. He's not backbiting. He's not making you feel badly by the things he's saying. So he has good speech. He's not that he would not be condemned and that those who are, are opponents would, would not be able to look at him and, and say, you know, like, he's a Christian. She's a Christian. So that they will have nothing evil to say about you. They're always looking for something evil to say about us, right? They're always looking. They want to see. Because somehow the world knows what Christians are supposed to behave like. They do. And so when they see something not right that they know is supposed to be right, they'll go, and they call themselves a Christian. That's a very hurtful phrase, in my opinion. But like I said, they're watching. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. This is an ancient book, but we are, these truths are still relevant for today. And then it says in verse 15, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. I'm speaking these things to you with the authority of Jesus Christ and the word of God. Let no one despise you. So there it is. I told you. Remember the one girl that said, I wish somebody would have told me. I told you. And now it goes into my account as a watchman on the wall. She told you. <laughs> Stage two. This is the newly married relationships. This is when the two mighty, I'm sorry, I had an illustration earlier of two rivers coming together. I didn't share it. Have you ever been whitewater rafting? <laughs> Well, you could see two rivers flowing side by side for years. This was explained to me as a, as a picture of marriage. And now those, marriage, those rivers, those mighty rivers merged and they come together and they create category five rapid waters. 
They're a blast. They're so much fun. I didn't go in five. I went in three. But marriage is not for the faint of heart. Just like getting in a raft and riding down the rapids isn't for the faint of heart. But it's wild and it's fun. And it could be a wonderful experience. Now, years ago, believe it or not, Joe and I taught premarital classes. And we were the overseers of the marriage ministry at Calvary Chapel Golden Springs. So this is what grace looks like. I told you my past, but then God saw fit to put us in the area where we were our weakest and where we failed in the place where he could get the glory, right? That's what he likes. He likes to take the weak things and use them for his glory. So when we were there and teaching the premarital classes, we would always encourage a period of courtship time if they wanted to get married. Don't run to the altar right away. Get to know one another. This is what I call the discovery zone. This is where you find out if there's any red flags and you're not willing to marry somebody with so many red flags. But now you are married. You have made your vows. You're finally now living under one roof. There isn't any more shock factor if you had that courtship period. But otherwise, you can have a lot of shock factor when you marry this person. And you start seeing the things that they do that you never saw before <laughs> in those newly married years. Now you may think, well, with my love, I could change him. He'll change, you know, when he's with me every day. Nope, it won't happen. <laughs> no one can transform anyone except for the Holy Spirit. So you are married. People often say our biggest investment in life is when we purchase our first home. And this is true for financial, um, material things. But our biggest investment is, is our commitment. And when we say, I do take this man as my wedded husband till death do we part. Now you can't get much more invested than that, committing to life. Now, as I shared, my husband is Pastor Joe. <laughs> Did I say that part? My husband is Pastor Joe. <laughs> so I've been able to go to countless weddings over the years. Literally, I quit counting, I don't know, 25 years ago. <laughs> and I have never witnessed at any of these weddings a couple get to their vows and somebody say, nope, I'm out, and take off. I've never seen that. Now, I've been to non-believers' weddings as well, and they do change their vows. They leave out key words that Christians put in to their vows. And my husband gives an awesome wedding ceremony. He does. I love the vows that he has them commit to. So in this second stage, this is when you're living out your vows. And you, are, you should be diligently learning how to practice the virtues and the principles for marriage that you just vowed to. You see, in theory, which means without experience or practice, you may go forward into a marriage thinking, oh, I, I know all about marriage and the family and the home. We're going to be fine. But in reality, it really is a day-by-day -day process. It's giving and forgiving because you do have to forgive almost instantly, especially like if your husband 
leave something really funky in the bathroom, or you do. <laughs> like, oh, he's so cute. No, that's gross, you know. It used to be it was so cute, but now it's so gross. Well, forgiving. <laughs> so here's where it all starts. Sorry. <laughs> here's where it all starts. First, the pastor always asks, who gives his bride away to be wedded to this man? And both parents or one parent will say, we do. So you have just agreed to give away your daughters and your sons into the arms of someone else. Notice, moms, you have given away your daughters and your sons, so cut the apron strings. This is not my order. This is God's order, right? Leave your father and your mother and cleave to your husband. This is where cleaving begins. And so many parents get too involved in their young these young couples' marriages, where they want to tell them everything, what to do, and all that. You can't have two kings and two queens in one house. One king, one queen per house, per palace. Second, brides, this is when you take your groom to be your wedded husband as as long as you both shall live. Now, my husband always adds, with the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because we know without the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you can't go to the end of your life with that person. It is because we, we are flawed people. We have issues. And so it's only through the Holy Spirit. So third, here is the promises and the principles that you make to God and to your husband and in the presence of your witnesses at your wedding. Now, have you ever considered that where two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, he's there? So Jesus sits right in the front row, his Holy Spirit, right in the front row, and he's watching your weddings and listening to your vows. And these are the kind of vows my husband gives in a wedding, that I will spiritually adorn the hidden woman of my heart, 1 Peter 3, 3 through 5, and I will love you. In all aspects of love, including steady, a steady pattern of intimacy, following the principles of 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. It tells us in that passage that if you don't have that steady pattern and you both agree, well, we'll, you know, we'll break the pattern for right now for whatever reason. If you, if you overrun that pattern or that time, the enemy can creep right in and he's waiting for that opportunity. So when you make your vows, you commit to love him steadily in all aspects of love. And reverence you. I will reverence you in the fear of the Lord. Genesis 3.16, Titus 2.4, and Ephesians 5.33. and To submit to him in the fear of the Lord as the church submits to Christ and Christ submits to the Father. Ephesians 5.22 through 24. That's the word that a lot of non-believers leave out. I ain't submitting to nobody. He ain't my boss. But this is a holy submission. Sorry. <laughs> I told you I was raised in Ball Park in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> and you're promising to train up our children, should the Lord bless you with children one day, in the ways of the Lord, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, to look well to the ways of your household, Proverbs 31, 27, and Titus chapter 2. So quite the vows, right? 
Marriage is serious to God, and it's serious to us. It's a, because it's a covenant between you and your husband and God. Now, all of this is possible only through agape love, which is unconditional, sacrificial love. Agape love chooses to love even when they're unlovable. Just as Jesus chose us in all of our flaws and we became his bride, the bride of Christ. Now onto our third stage, our marital relationships. I told you I'm going long. You've been married now for four, five, six plus years. You've been blessed with children, although sometimes it can feel like a curse. You have rent and mortgage payments, car payments, health insurance payments for boo-boos galore that the kids are getting, taking them to urgent care to pay for co-payments, bills and bills and more bills. By now, you might be on survival mode, right? And maybe even feeling more like a housewife than a wife. There's no romance. One or both of you are just too tired. We become those people that we see in restaurants that when they're sitting by themselves on date night, all they talk about is the kids, or they're just not talking at all. They're just sitting there with their faces in their plate. Okay, we did our date night. Let's go home. So the word sex is used more in terms of you're the man, I'm the woman. That's when all of a sudden, all of our godly given roles in marriage become highlights for arguments. Comments like, well, you're supposed to submit. Well, you're supposed to love me like Christ loved the church, and you're getting me all wrinkled up here. It says that we're, you know the husband's supposed to present his bride pure and white without wrinkles. But he's wrinkling you all up in your attitude, and you're getting mad at him. And, and so these arguments are just going back and forth, trying to define who we're supposed to be in God. Phrases like, you always and you never are fighting words. They will provoke a fight so fast. You never do this. You always do that. It's like the arrows, Satan's arrow, fiery darts are just flying around the room, these words. He loves it when we bring up the past because he's love doesn't keep record, right? And when we get into an argument and we're throwing, we're like dredging up the past and we're throwing it back in their face, we never really forgave because it was right there all along waiting to use it as a, as a weapon of what one did to the other. Proverbs 14 once says, A wise woman builds her home, but a foolish woman can tear it down with her hands. Now we need to go back into the garden again. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now I love that. They heard him walking in the garden. God is a spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. Who's walking in the garden? God is walking. This is considered a theophany of Jesus. Jesus would appear from time to time in human form. So there he was, walking in the garden. He's God. He could do it, right? And he and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and he said to him, where are you? It wasn't like, where are you? He knew where he was, but he, I believe he tenderly said, where are you? Where are you in your soul right now, Adam? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. There was no fear before, but now there is, because I was naked and I hid myself. So there was fear and shame. 
And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, it's a biblical fact and a cultural fact, pretty much, that all around the world, that men are the head of the house. Wait a minute, I think I missed something. No, I didn't. Are the head of the house. And that's because for generations, husbands and wives, well, first of all, think about all around the world, people get married, right? Everyone gets married. It's a principle that everyone knows in their heart of hearts they want to be with that mate. And so there's always the man is the head of the house. And it's been established from the very beginning. After they fell, God did pass some judgment on them. And God said to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, there's two interpretations for that. First, that we have a desire for a man, and we do. So I believe that one. We do have a, a desire within us, even as little girls, to desire that husband one day. But also that desire is interpreted as a woman always wanting to rule over her husband to, to tell him what to do and to be that in control like Eve did in the garden. And so that's why God gave this rule. You need to submit to your husband as the head of your home. But it's also a fact that women are the heartbeat and the pulse of a home. And for the most part, men love it. I know my husband does. I love being a homemaker. I love, you know, the gift that the Lord has given me over the years to develop my home with very little money. And that is, I love that. And my husband loves that. And he, um, I don't wear the pants by any means in our house. But for the most part, because I once was a secretary for a big company, and I left that when I vowed that I would be home with my children and raise them. And um, he, so he lets me be the secretary of our home. And that's the way I look at that. But women are also the rhythm of the home. Like if you're in a rock and roll state of mind, then so is the household. In other words, you're rocking and rolling. You are yelling and screaming, you know, rock and roll music. Just, ah, you know, you're loud and just being loud in the house and not being gentle to the children. The kids, don't they usually just run off and hide like mom's in one of those moods? Or maybe you're playing the blues in the family. You're depressed or you're angry and you're not talking to anybody. I know for me, because I am a talker, when my girls see me quiet, they go, something's wrong with mom. She's not talking. Something's wrong. We must have did something. Because they know, right, when we change moods in the house. We can be a human thermometer, which reads the temperature of our homes, hot or cold. Your husband could come home from a hard day of work, toiling the ground that was cursed that he had to work all the days of his life, remember, by the sweat of his brow. That was Adam's curse. So he comes home tired and exhausted to a wife that is hot or cold. He may want to come in and instantly leave right away. Or we can be a thermostat in that in of ourselves we can monitor and control the temperature of our demeanor, and therefore the temperature of our homes. Our presence in the home does make a difference. 
Pride is the enemy of God. And that's where pride will come in and do a lot of damage in your homes in your third season of your life or a stage of marriage. In Isaiah 57, 15, it says, The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, says this, I live in a high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite, in other words, repentant, and humble. I restore the crushed spirit in the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Blaming is the enemy of the Holy Spirit. One important work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sins. In John 1.10, it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word of God is not in us. The word tells us all over it what looks like sin and what is sin. James 4.17 says, If you know to do good and you do not do it, it is sin. That's the one that I live by. If I know i got to do this good thing today and I don't do it, it's sin. The Holy Spirit prompts us to do those good things. Unforgiveness is the enemy of Jesus. Luke 9, 23 through 24 says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, for years I used to hear people teach that to deny yourself and take up the cross is to basically bear your burdens. But that's not what it means. When Jesus went to the cross, what did he go to the cross for? To die for our sins. So we are to take the sins of others to our cross and die to self and love on these people. Jesus said the reason for the word divorce that flies around the house in those arguments is because of hardened hearts. So when we start to feel the distance in our marriages by this third stage of your marriage, it's because you have put a spiritual distance between you and the Lord. Whether it's your prayer life or your your devotional life, there's a distance and you have left your first love, your, your groom, Jesus. Now, I would strongly recommend, and and this is a pattern that I tried following in my early years of marriage, when I read about this woman named um, Sarah Edwards. She was the wife of Jonathan Edwards, and she had 12 kids. When you have 12 kids and a husband who is a minister, always gone, she told the kids, when you see mom, and this is in the 1800s, sitting in that chair with an apron pulled over my head. And an apron, by the way, is a garment that we would wear when we would cook so we wouldn't stain our clothes. When you see mom with that apron over her head, stay away. Don't ask me any questions. Don't come talk to me. Don't come near me. It's for your benefit because I am with Jesus. I am reading his word and I'm in prayer. So, ladies, I encourage you, you've got to have a devotional life. Jesus dwelt among us. He saw the plight of women, the laboring woman, the lack of respect for women, the restless woman who was married seven times, the fallen woman caught in adultery, the demon-possessed woman, and the prostitute woman. He wasn't ignorant to the fact that women are in these different places in life. And he certainly isn't now. Jesus is our greatest advocate and the greatest liberator for all of us. But you can't know this personally until you come to him every day. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor on a heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and I will, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. In other words, he's tender. And I will, you will find rest for your souls. 
Finally, sorry, in closing, the fourth stage, the golden years of our marriage, which is where my husband and I are now. I heard a story the other day of an aging couple. They were sitting in their TV room, as most aging couples do, and the husband was sitting in his recliner, and the wife was sitting on the sofa, and the husband looked over at the wife, and he had a romantic thought about her. And so he said to her, after 50 years, I have found you tried and true. And her not being able to hear very good, she said, eh? (laughs) And he said, after 50 years, I have found you tried and true. And she said, after 50 years, I'm tired of you too. (laughs) Well, it can be. (laughs) But one of the ways nowadays in our lives, the way we show love and affection to one another is we ask each other, did you take your vitamins? Did you take your meds? (laughs) Can I drive you to your doctor's appointment? (laughs) Will you drive me to mine? Life changes. It really does. And now it's just about finishing life well. I would be a liar if I didn't say that our marriage is perfect. I mean, I'd be a liar if I said it was perfect. It is not perfect. But we are approaching our 50th wedding anniversary next June. So we've come a long way, baby. And I would be the worst of hypocrites if I didn't practice and my husband isn't practicing the things I've just shared with you tonight. And we're still becoming one. We're like that river. We're finally flowing a little closer together, a little bit more majestic in our older years. But he's not done with us. We are still working out our own salvation with fear and trembling every day. In closing, in 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11, Peter says, Dear sisters and brothers, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I love you, Lord. I thank you, my God, for your word. I know I I had so much I would have wanted to share, Lord. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have these ladies cultivate their own souls, Lord. That they would dig into your word and find all the riches, find all the jewels, find all the treasures that are in your word, Lord God, from beginning to end. It's filled with amazing stories that I couldn't even mention, Lord. Just my own is a testimony to your great grace in our life. And it's really only by grace that any of us are here. And it's by grace and your mercy and love that we continue on. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.